Hi, everybody. So a little while ago, I was asked to prepare a lecture on technology and philosophy for a friend of mine who's teaching on Tolkien. And uh, I did that. I prepared it and presented it to his class. And I thought you might like to hear it. So what I want to do today is just go over that with you. And instead of printing it out and pretending like, you know, I'm just performing it for you and don't have it, I figured I would just throw it on screen here and you can see I will uh, read along with you. So I was asked to speak about technology or rather about why serious philosophers could ever have thought that what's implied by a technological attitude towards ourselves in the world could be seen as a big problem. All right, let's pause the comment. On one hand, you could say we're talking about technology, cameras, phones, cars, automation, all of that. But more fundamentally, we're talking about what a technological attitude towards the world and towards ourselves might imply. And in fact, there are philosophers who have thought that a technological attitude towards ourselves in the world is significant and worth thinking about in detail and in fact could be a big problem. To give you straight away the most noteworthy example, the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, Martin Heidegger, considered the question concerning the essence of technology to be among the worthiest topics of our concentrated attention, in part because he was worried that the technologization of our existence meant a hollowing out, uprooting, and destruction of the human being and of our relationship to being itself. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. If we don't start with the heights of German philosophy, but with our own everyday experiences, then we're less likely to talk about a technological attitude or worldview or about the rootedness or uprootedness of the human being. Right? If I just ask you, what do you think about the latest technology? You may not necessarily start thinking about a technological attitude or uprootedness. And more likely, we'll talk about the everyday technologies that in general make our lives easier and more enjoyable, such as cell phones, espresso machines, a personal favorite of mine, and laptops, to name a few. In fact, I love this software that I'm using to be able to toggle between a full screen and a shared screen. I'm very happy that I have a camera that looks pretty decent. This microphone, that sounds not so bad. So that's technology, isn't it? It just makes my life easier. It makes it easier for me to share with you and to be comfortable, light, heat. All right. That's the, I think, ordinary interpretation of technology. It just makes our lives easier. Consumer technologies, information technologies, communication technologies, you deal with these all the time in a hundred different ways, obviously. And although there are typical frustrations associated with any technological device, like for instance, bad internet connections or hardware or software that doesn't work quite like you expect it to, still as a rule, we tend to believe that the solution to these problems is more technology and better technology and that the improved outcomes will make our lives easier and more pleasant overall. Wouldn't you say so? If there's something wrong with the technology, we tend to think that the solution is better technology. Somehow, in other words, it's implied in the idea of technology itself that technology is essentially progressive. It gets better. Version 2.0 will solve the problems of version 1.0. Admittedly, it will create its own problems, but nothing that version 3.0 can't fix. And if we extrapolate we may be tempted to conclude that there's some version, some point in time in the progress of technological development, when just maybe there will be no more old problems to solve, only new vistas to explore, uncreated worlds to imagine and create. 
So our first iteration gave us some problems, second iteration, third. And then maybe at some point the technology has reached a level where it has just solved the problem. It hasn't created new problems. It has just progressed to the point where it's finished, so to speak. Now it's all upside, uh, bright blue skies. At one extreme, this technological utopia seems to fulfill some genuine wants of ours. More comfort, more convenience, more safety, more security, more efficiency, more speed, more control, and more fun. And you would almost think that this quote-unquote more itself is part of technology's DNA. In a tech utopia, environmental technologies can be managed to preserve a sustainable future for the Earth's population, providing clean air, clean water, abundant food, etc. So we can envision a technological utopia. More of all the things that we consider good and less of all the things that we consider bad. Through aeronautical technologies, for example, the Earth's population, at least some portion of it, could foreseeably populate distant planets and set out to conquer a vast, maybe infinitely vast frontier, encouraged by the belief that there's nothing the pioneering or Promethean spirit in man cannot conquer. Speaking of the Promethean spirit, a recent book at the time that I was giving this talk, a book on Prometheism, championing the merits of Prometheism, openly embraces a future that overcomes not only the limitations of space and time, but the limitations of human nature and reality itself, ushering in a brave new post-human, post-real world in a moment that those who work on these issues call the singularity. Of course, if the fruits of potential technological hyperdevelopment are not shared equally among the human race, but are weaponized or hoarded by what might eventually become a sort of superhuman tech oligarchy or tyranny, then suddenly the picture looks less rosy for the large excluded underclass who by assumption benefit from technology. So even if we have technology constantly improving, getting better, better, and better, maybe the possessors of the technology form a sort of tyrannical superclass vis-a-vis the majority. And uh, then you have a kind of potential dystopian concern arising. So what we can say is that for technological development to be good, it must be good for everyone or for as many people as possible. Technology then might imply its own inherent standard of progress, but there are also standards of justice that it must meet to be good. You see this consideration of justice comes in when we have here the tyrannical superhuman tech oligarchy and the excluded underclass. Again, technology would seem to have to meet certain standards of justice to be good. And when it falls short of those standards, opposes them, or even undermines them, then we are justified in wondering whether or not technology is simply good, as the argument assumed that it is. Right up here, we just assumed at the outset that technology makes our lives easier, better, that it improves itself, and that ultimately it has just upside. But suddenly when we bring in the justice consideration, we're left wondering whether or not technology is simply good. But to continue the argument, it's clear that we over-exaggerated to begin with the positive vision of a technological utopia, where we get all the benefits of efficiency, comfort, problem solving, and everything else with comparatively few downsides. Chemical and biological weapons, atomic bombs, centralized surveillance apparatuses, 
These are also technologies, and I would guess that no one among you would dare to call them and the other implements of destruction and control simply good. I think that's clear enough. We could, of course, wonder whether there might come a stage of human progress, a technology, you know, not 1.0, 2.0, but 100.0, so to speak, somewhere in the distant future, let's say a thousand years from now, that will render even weapons of war a thing of the past, since it will have ushered in an era of world peace. Overcoming scarcity, maybe scarcity is one of the causes of our violence, and if you overcome scarcity technologically, therefore you've also overcome a cause of violence, and satisfying men's deepest longings, such that no one will need to kill or be killed for a cause that isn't shared by all other rational beings. Now I ask you, is that so unreasonable? You've heard about medical technologies like pills, for instance, that are designed to alleviate pain and sadness. Perhaps there will be technologies that alleviate aggression, pride, and the other psychological causes of war, as well as technologies that ensure abundance. And in that case, we don't have to worry about this chemical, biological weapons, bombs, surveillance, and destruction, because the assumption here, or the argument being developed here, is that technology will overcome the very preconditions of all of that. On the basis of a more rigorous philosophical analysis, there have been serious thinkers who argued persuasively that the development of technology or of the spirit of technology will lead inevitably to a world of universal equality where no one will, where no one will need to work or fight again. Since human history is, according to these writers, the history of working and fighting, such an outcome would be the end of human history. That is the end of the human being and the end of history. And some of you, of course, know the famous book by Francis Fukuyama called The End of History and the Last Man. That book develops the argument made by Alexander Kojev in his reading of Hegel, a German thinker who argued that history has ended and that he's the one who, in understanding it, has completed it once and for all. Okay, we don't need to have a long dispute here about Kojev and Hegel and this in a nutshell presentation, but the key thing is this. Kojev made an argument that the development of technology could lead to a world of universal equality where no one will need to work or fight again. In fact, Leo Strauss had a dispute with Kojev over this claim, over the relationship of tyranny and wisdom and technology to a certain extent in the book on tyranny and at millermanschool.com, my school, I have a course on that book. I happen to have it right here as well. And you should definitely have a look one day at Leo Strauss's On Tyranny, especially his exchange with Kojev over this issue of a universal world state that has overcome working and fighting as a function of the progression of technology. Go back here to the notes. All of that is to say that German philosophy comes up whether it's Hegel or Heidegger or whom have you, when we begin to think about these things, about technology, progress, the sources of violence and war, and the meaning of progress. You can't think about technology somehow without the German philosophy coming into the picture. Well, without talking about the end of history and all of that, and you have to remember I originally gave this paper to undergraduates necessarily did not necessarily want to go into the depths of Heidegger and Hegel, just trying to stay roughly in and on the surface. Without talking about the end of history and all of that, we're probably on more solid ground for now. If we revise the argument that technology is good, the simply utopian 
interpretation of technology and assert instead the opinion that technology is neither good, that means no technological utopia follows from the nature of technology itself, nor bad, no dystopia either, but rather neutral. Okay? View number one, technology is good, makes our lives easier, better. But then we have this other concern about technologies of surveillance, destruction, and all of that. We go to the opposite extreme. We say, let's consider the view that technology is just dystopian. Well, now we're striking a middle road and we're suggesting that we consider the neutrality of technology. You've probably heard the phrase, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, on this view, the same applies to technology. It doesn't kill, it doesn't heal. People do that with its help. Technology is, on this view, a means to ends that are not implicit in technology itself, but that are selected by the person. It is only as good or bad as the people who use it. How do things stand with this thesis of the neutrality of technology? If technology is ultimately neutral in itself, then you'd have to be an old crank or Luddite or maybe just an incompetent fool to be critical of it, like an angry old man yelling at a cloud. Let me digress for a moment. I don't know Tolkien well enough. Remember I told you I originally presented this to a Tolkien um, discussion group or class. I don't know Tolkien well enough to know in detail what his thoughts were on technology. And I've been assured that that's okay since our conversation is not about Tolkien, but rather about technology. But I do have a colleague who writes about Tolkien and he told me something relevant to this neutrality idea. So in fact, when I was preparing these notes, I did reach out to a friend of mine who studies Tolkien and I found out the following. Oops. Tolkien, he said, viewed technology as an exponential power, neither intrinsically good nor evil. An odd integer, say evil, would remain odd, but greater. So technology can make evil worse. The converse is true for even integers and goodness. All right. Tolkien viewed technology as an exponential power, neither intrinsically good nor evil. He mentioned, a other, he mentioned a few other things as well, which complicate the idea of neutrality, though. Tolkien, he said, viewed human nature through a Catholic lens. All men are born into original sin, and all men are tempted by the power of technology to increase their own power for the sake of sin and in the service of sin. And now we ask the following question. What does the neutrality of technology mean? If all men are quote-unquote odd integers tainted by original sin. You see, technology is an exponential power. It can increase the evil. We take that and we combine it with the view that all men are born into original sin. All men start evil, we can say, roughly. While among other things, it would mean that for a Catholic, the evaluation of technology would need to fall under not just any standard of justice, but under the Catholic standard of justice in particular. For instance, Aquinas's. So here we do not have technology all by itself. We have technology falling under a standard of justice, and in particular falling under a certain Christian standard of justice. You see, all of this makes it complicated, thinking about the meaning of technology. If it's an amplifier, if it's neutral, and we're neutral, then maybe that's neutral. But what if it's a neutral amplifier of our original sin? Is it still neutral? You see, the point is more general. It's somehow not enough to say that technology is neutral and that whether it's good or bad depends on man because it's an open question, at least at first, whether man himself is by nature neutral or good or bad and whether there is a feedback loop between technology and man's nature that makes him better or worse. 
I hope you grasp that. Something to consider. Even the neutrality of technology doesn't get us around the problem that it may be bad if it amplifies our essential badness in a sort of feedback loop. Is man a fallen being born into original sin and tempted by power? Does it belong to the essence of man to be dangerous? Or was man born or made, possibly, good and only corrupted through his long history? For instance, through the establishment of the arts, which adversely affected his simple virtue. You see, were we born in original sin or were we born innocent and corrupted? Well, the arts are themselves technological. As I note here, art is just the standard translation of the Greek term techne. Art, the arts are technolo technological. If we were born good or innocent, how could we have been corrupted by something inherently neutral, which should have reflected or embodied our goodness rather than causing our corruption? Let me just restate the questions here. We had considered the meaning of neutral technology if men are born in original sin. Now we say, well, what if man is born good and he's corrupted by the arts, he's corrupted by technology? Well, it should be weird if we were corrupted by something inherently neutral. If we were born good and corrupted by technology, it would seem like technology is primarily not neutral. Because why should something neutral make something good bad? As we dig even just a little below the surface of our initial impression that for the most part, ordinary everyday technologies make our lives easier and more pleasant, we're confronted surprisingly, perhaps, with some big questions and issues. Utopia, dystopia, good and evil, God and the fall, history, reason, freedom, the arts, innocence, and corruption. Alternatives connected with names like Aquinas and Rousseau, Plato and the Bible. Should it be so strange if our journey to the heights of contemplation should start from ordinary experience and everyday opinion? In Plato's Republic, the famous allegory of the cave teaches us, among other things, that the ascent which Socrates calls education, the turning around of the soul toward eternity, toward the things that truly are, an ascent so thoroughgoing that it takes us all the way beyond being itself, begins from the shadows on the wall of the cave from our habitual opinions and impressions. When we begin to think about what occurs to us in ordinary life, such as how technology occurs to us, the phenomenon of technology, the essence of technology, when we really begin to think, the ordinary gradually transforms itself into something quite strange and unusual. And in the best case, we are also transformed. Those of you who watch anything else I put out on this channel will know that that's a big insight for Heidegger as well as for Strauss that the heart of things is the surface of things or for Heidegger that if we just pay attention to the fact that we're not even perplexed by something like the meaning of being we take it for granted and yet in short when we pay attention to the things that we take for granted they can transform into something strange and unusual and we can be transformed in our very being, like in Plato's cave allegory, a turning around of the soul. It does not seem to be possible to think seriously about technology, in short, without calling into question what it means to be human. It is, in general, the providence above all of those we call philosophers to reflect on what it means to be human in the most comprehensive way. And perhaps it is for that reason that it is among philosophers that you find, as I said at the outset, 
genuine concerns about what the technological outlook on the world and on ourselves implies about our relationship to the grounds of our existence and to our deepest and most fundamental needs. Let me just repeat that briefly in words that are not on the paper. We start thinking about philosophy, excuse me, about technology. We start from our ordinary experience. We begin to just dig into the everyday opinions that we have about technology. And before too long, we're faced with big philosophical questions. We don't have to start with the big philosophical questions. They arise when we start from the everyday common notions. Technology is, on one hand, potentially utopian. On the other hand, potentially dystopian. Is the variance in technology itself? Is it in us? What does it mean for something to be technolo technological? How does that relate to our attitude towards the world and towards ourselves? The big philosophical issues, the nature of human existence and the nature of the cosmos as such, just arise when we think the questions through starting from the very first steps. I now want to talk to you about how my teacher in these matters thought about what's implied by modern attitudes towards technology. I'm referring to Leo Strauss, a 20th century scholar of the history of political philosophy. And I mentioned earlier that I have a course on, on tyranny at millermanschool.com. I also have a course that's an introduction to Leo Strauss, seven lectures, seven different readings. Strauss is very crucial. And by the way, the first lecture of those courses and of most of my courses, uh, the first lectures are always available for free in the free trial. So go to millermanschool.com if you're interested in learning more, do the free trial or consider buying a course. Strauss was my teacher through his books. I didn't actually study with him in person, but you can listen to his lectures online. They were recorded when he was at the University of Chicago. And most importantly, you can read his books. And Strauss saw something about this issue, the issue of the implications of a technological outlook on the world. He saw something about that issue quite profoundly. Now, there are a few different ways we could work into his arguments, and I'm just going to give you one way. So this is not the final word about Strauss on technology, but it'll give you something to think about. Strauss observed that modern Western civilization is in a crisis. He characterized this crisis as a crisis of a certain kind of rationalism, modern rationalism. It was once thought that reason was able to provide rational guidance for a good human life. You could reason about the right way of life and your rationality would guide you in living the best way of life. That guidance was presented in the teaching of the classical political philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, even up to and including Aquinas to a certain extent, who argued that there is a stable, knowable standard for the good life, that it is the just life, excuse me, that it is the life lived in the pursuit of and in accordance with our moral and intellectual perfection, a life of justice, moderation, courage, and prudence. So the good life, the best life, the rationally defensible and knowable life is the life that pursues moral and intellectual perfection. And that embodies, develops, and expresses the virtues of justice, moderation, courage, and prudence. The classics didn't assess those things, excuse me, didn't assert those things on the basis of a quote-unquote personal commitment to their values. It's not just like Oh, they had an irrational commitment to the values of justice, moderation, courage, and prudence. A um, racist and classist and elitist value commitment to moral and intellectual perfection. The whole language of values falls outside of what it is that they're talking about. It's already characteristic of the modern way of speaking and thinking about these things. 
They, the classics, reasoned about the nature of things and showed what is good. But in the modern era, the idea that the nature of the good life could be rationally understood was replaced by the view that there is no science or knowledge of the ends of human life. No knowledge, in other words, about the best way to live. Instead, life becomes an artistic creation, a product of will rather than reason, or of commitment rather than knowledge. The imperative that matches this view is be authentic or be yourself. Be who and what you want to be. Freely create yourself. You are a work of art. The problem is that there's no standard here for what is good. No stable, knowable standard. It's in the eye of the beholder. The transformations in the understanding of human nature that led to the rejection of a rational standard for the good life led in the political domain to the rejection of rational standards for the good society. The philosophical crisis was thus also a political and moral crisis. For total value relativism or relativity implied that even cannibalism is just a matter of taste, as Strauss once put it. Strauss was keenly interested in understanding the nature of this crisis of modern Western civilization and restoring a sober alternative to it, one that he believed was offered by the classical political rationalism of the ancients, Socrates especially. It's not enough just to prefer the classics, however. Strauss had to show where things went wrong. He had to explain how the first modern thinkers broke from the classical tradition and how that deliberate act culminated in the crisis that he was trying to understand and avert. He can't just say, I prefer the classics. How did the classical teaching become the modern teaching? What happened? What's the nature of that transition or transformation? More importantly, or even fundamentally, Strauss had to show that it was possible to return to the ancients. He therefore had to raise the question of progress and return and show that progress or a progressive and technological interpretation of being and time is not the only genuine option, that the old option had not been truly refuted because it had not been truly understood, or, in other words, that we could return to the classical teaching, that we could return to Plato and the Bible, to give you two fundamental pillars of Strauss's uh, project of offering an alternative to the crisis of modern rationalism. For our purposes, meaning for understanding something about the relationship between how we think about human being and how we think about technology, it may be helpful to consider what Strauss said about the first decisive break with the classical tradition, which he located in the political philosophy of Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Locke in that order. By the way, hope you don't mind my saying, at millermanschool.com, I have a course called Philosophical Analysis of Manliness. And in effect, it's a history of political philosophy seen through Straussian eyes. And I discuss this break with the classical tradition. We begin with Socrates and Aristotle, and then Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Locke, as well as Rousseau, Kojev, Nietzsche, left Nietzscheans, right Nietzscheans, Heidegger, left and right Heideggerians. So if you want to know this history of political philosophy through a course that I teach at my school, you can have a look at that philosophical analysis of manliness. And the first lecture, which is on Plato's Dialogue on Courage, 
is available for free on my YouTube channel. It's about an hour long and you should have a look at that as well. But here we're talking about the break with the classical teaching. Now I'm going to generalize a bit. Prior to Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Locke, the classical authors took their bearings by man's perfection, by the perfection of man's nature. You ask, what is the good life? What is the best society? What's our measuring rod? What's our point of reference? It is man's perfection. Man's nature, his specific difference from other beings, is his rationality or intellect. As a result, the perfection of man's nature consists primarily in the perfection of his intellect. Politically, that entails the theoretical teaching that the best city is the city ruled by the wise. Or let's put it this way, that the best political community is the political community ruled by the wise, by philosophers, by those who have purified and exercised their intellects in regard to the highest objects of intellection more than anyone else. And the highest of these, according to Socrates, is the idea of the good. So who's qualified to rule? Those who have to the most, to the utmost, perfected their nature, meaning perfected their intellect, meaning exercised their intellect in the act of intellecting the highest intelligibles. Here, the idea of the good. But the classics understood that the actualization of the best life, the life of the philosopher, and the best city, the city ruled by philosophers, or the political community, polis, ruled by philosophers, was rare, though not impossible. It depended to a great extent on chance. For instance, there's a lot of chance involved with the potential philosopher becoming an actual philosopher without first being corrupted along the way. To give you another example from Plato's Republic, the best city, or political community polis, needs a philosopher king, but that's the highly unlikely coincidence of philosophy and political power. So don't get lost here. I'm going to give you the key point. For the classics, the best outcomes are very rare and depend in part on chance for their realization. Nevertheless, this rare perfection provides a guideline or standard for judging the more easily realizable or actualizable second and third best alternatives. Now you see here I'm skipping over a bunch of details, referring you to the good books by Strauss on these matters, but we briefly continue the rough sketch of the modern break with the classics by turning to Machiavelli, who said that we should not take our bearings by how man ought to live, by what's best in us, by our perfection, but rather by how he actually does live. We don't want to orient ourselves by that which is rare. We want to orient ourselves by that which is reliable. Our moral and political teaching should therefore be realistic. We should be able to guarantee its actualization, something that the classics, to repeat, did not want to do because they understood the role of chance in human life and they understood the limits of human action. Machiavelli says no. To ensure the outcome that we want, we must conquer chance. So he's rejecting the classical teaching. He's saying no to the acknowledgement of the role of chance in our lives. We must conquer chance. We must conquer fortune. We cannot leave things up to chance. So rather than aiming at what is highest in man and therefore rarest, we will find instead a lower, more common, more reliable passion, a selfish passion that can serve as an attainable standard for human life. 
not wisdom, but what? Well, Machiavelli says glory. Because men want glory, which is a lower and more common passion than intellectual perfection or the love of wisdom, they can be taught to believe that certain actions will gain them glory or everlasting fame and reputation. Machiavelli could therefore propagate a new moral and political teaching that he thought would stand a far greater chance of actually coming to be. The most important thing for our purposes that Strauss says about Machiavelli's revolution is this. He lowered the standard of the good life to something more common and reliable, and in doing so, he took a radically non-classical stance toward chance or fortune as something that could be conquered. And now, in order to tie it in with what we had been talking about, the main way chance or fortune is conquered is through science or technology. Now, there are a few things to say here, a couple of different ideas that I'd like to ask you to pay special attention to. The first is this. For the classics, the nature of a thing means its essence. Human nature is to be a reasoning being, a rational animal, a soul with intelligence, something along those lines. And that nature or essence is fulfilled when it is perfected. We have a nature and we fulfill our nature when we perfect our nature. Or let's say it's our nature to do something and we perfect our nature when we do that well, when we actualize it, when we bring it from potential into actuality. A life according to nature is thus a life in accordance with reason and intellect. All right, but what happens when the notion of nature shifts? This is a crucial question for Strauss because for him, the shifting meaning of technology in our history has something to do with the shifting meaning of nature in our history. So that's why first we delineate or distinguish the classical notion of nature as the essence of a thing. But what happens when that notion of nature shifts and when suddenly nature is the natural world of chance and fortune? Like I'm a nature lover. It doesn't mean I'm an essence lover. It means I want to be out there. That's the way we use it now, isn't it? Well, what happens when nature suddenly is the natural world of chance and fortune, of the scarcity, danger, and unpredictability that poses an obstacle to man's free development? Now, nature is scarcity, danger, and obstacle. If suddenly we're talking about conquering chance and fortune with Machiavelli, and nature is no longer seen as the essence of things, but as the realm of chance and fortune, a realm of hostile necessity opposed to the human realm of freedom, then you see we're now talking about conquering nature. That makes nature something separate from us and something negative in relation to us. Nature is here the enemy to be conquered. It limits our free rationality, our science and technology. But by means of our science and technology, we will conquer our natural limitations. So we get this crucial division. On one side, nature necessity, and on the other side, reason, freedom. And we have the war, as it were, of technology against nature to liberate free rationality from its natural constraints. Now, that's absolutely crucial for Strauss because the very notion of nature is transformed in the modern break with the classical tradition. Now, after Machiavelli, and again, this is a brief, after Machiavelli comes Hobbes, Hobbes argued that there's a more reliable passion in man than his desire for glory, on the basis of which to provide a low but solid standard for human life. 
Hobbes talks about man's fear of violent death at the hands of others as the bedrock. So we went from wisdom to glory, a selfish passion, less rare, the desire for glory, less rare than the desire for wisdom. And now we go down to the desire for safety and security. The fear of violent death becomes the basis in Machiavelli, according to Strauss. In a state of nature, quote unquote, before the establishment of laws and before the establishment of a political community, properly speaking, everyone is at war with everyone else, like in a failed state situation where we've abolished the police and everybody's trying to fend for himself. Everyone is a wolf to everyone else. And man is ultimately afraid of violent death. For Hobbes, this basic fact is the origin of all our rights. Since, for example, we have a natural right to self-defense and to whatever we judge for ourselves is necessary for our self-defense. Okay, so we, in a state of nature, have our rights rooted in our fear of violent death. Our rights are rooted in the right of self-defense and the right to have and to take whatever we believe we need for our self-defense. The flip side of this fear of violent death is the desire for comfortable self-preservation. And by the way, stick with this. It may seem like we've gone far from technology, but we haven't. The flip side of this fear of violent death is the desire for comfortable self-preservation. Hobbes and later Locke transformed the Christian understanding of the state of nature in their teachings. The Christian understanding of the state of nature, Strauss explains, was contrasted with man's pre-fallen state in paradise and his post-natural state of grace. So in the Christian teaching, according to Strauss, in his presentation, you have man before the fall, then you have the fall, that's the state of nature, and then you have redemption through grace. So the state of nature is bookended by paradise and redemption, so to speak. But in Hobbes, that is not the case. In Hobbes, rather, and in the other modern thinkers, the fall is ignored. Fallen man is called natural. And the Christian state of grace is replaced with the establishment of a liberal civil society dedicated ultimately to comfortable self-preservation based on the fear of death and matching a life dedicated to the limitless desire for acquisition, which we have learned to call the pursuit of happiness. Now that is quite a change from the Christian and classical teaching. And I hope you can see in what I've said that this desire for comfortable self-preservation and the limitless desire for acquisition through the scientific control and mastery of nature is pretty much precisely what we earlier said that we mean by technology in the everyday sense. Let me say that again. The desire for comfortable self-preservation and the limitless desire for acquisition through the scientific control and mastery of nature, which Strauss has traced to this shift in the history of political philosophy, this decisive break from Christian classical teaching, is pretty much what we consider technology in the everyday sense. It's the devices and the processes that make our lives easier and more pleasant. And however easy and pleasant they become, they could always be easier and more pleasant. There's no limit. The philosophical presuppositions that undergird that attitude toward technology, Strauss teaches us, are in part, in large part, is his claim, a function of the transformation or modification of the classical alternative that the modern thinkers inaugurated in a deliberate and highly questionable act of lowering the bar from human excellence and perfection to something more 
efficient, effective, actual, implementable, realizable. Lowering the standard somehow opened the Pandora's box of technological innovation. But that deliberate act of breaking with the classical teaching is for Strauss highly questionable. We are, as a rule, oblivious of the brazenness of the act of the founders of modernity, as well as of the older alternatives, which is why I think we should be very grateful when a great teacher like Strauss comes along and helps us become aware of them and to understand what's at stake in the things that we take for granted. And I ask here parenthetically, is there anything we take for granted more now than technology? I realize this has been a long talk. What are we at here? Yeah. But please let me try to bring the argument together for you compactly. Technology as the limitless conquest of nature, for the sake of ever-increasing comfortable self-preservation, is a function of the deliberate lowering of the standard of a good human and political life from the life lived in the pursuit of wisdom or intellectual perfection to the life based on fear of violent death and unbounded acquisition. Technology is indissolubly linked to the shift from an emphasis on man's duties to an emphasis on man's right, on his natural right to self-preservation based on his fear of death. There is then, it seems, a deep metaphysical or ontological undercurrent to technology, one premised on the rejection not only of the biblical teaching about man, but also on the rejection of the classical philosophical teaching. And since it is obvious, given world wars, for instance, that technology is not unqualifiedly a blessing, we are surely justified in wondering whether the classical view, both biblical and platonic, was not somehow sounder than is our modern technological perspective. Very roughly, that's how Strauss discussed technology. And as you see here, I want to give you one more taste of Strauss on the topic of technology before stopping. When Strauss wrote about Thomas Hobbes in Natural Right and History, he said something along the following lines. Hobbes saw the universe as a materialist mechanism. No forms, no essences, no ideas, no God, none of that. Nothing but bodies and their aimless motions, is how Strauss puts it. But at the same time, Hobbes had seen that mathematics, geometry in particular, was somehow able to stand its ground as knowledge or science proper. So on one hand, materialist mechanical view of the world. On the other hand, the independent, rational legitimacy of mathematics and in particular geometry. Why? What grants geometry its particular groundedness as knowledge or science? Well, geometry proceeds on the basis of constructions. And here's what Strauss says about the importance of that for Hobbes. Generally stated, we have absolutely certain or scientific knowledge only of those subjects of which we are the causes or whose construction is in our own power or depends on our arbitrary will. Unquote. You see, geometrical proofs are known because they're constructed from beginning to end. Now we're going to see the relevance of that to our topic here shortly. The construction he writes, would not be fully in our power if it made use of any matter, i.e. of anything that is not itself our construct. The world of our constructs is wholly unenigmatic because we are its sole cause and hence we have perfect knowledge of its cause. The cause of the world of our constructs 
does not have a further cause, a cause that is not or not fully within our power. The world of our constructs has an absolute beginning or is a creation in the strict sense. The world of our constructs is therefore the desired island that is exempt from the flux of blind and aimless causation. Remember, that's what the world is for Hobbes, blind and aimless causation. So on the basis of geometrical construction that we know what we make and that if we make it from beginning till end, we can know it fully, Hobbes carves out an island exempt from the flux of blind and aimless causation. The upshot of Hobbes' argument is that we understand only what we make. Man becomes the making being, the constructing being. And his making and constructing are in the service of creating an artificial island of comprehensibility in a sea of bodies and their aimless motions. I'm mentioning this argument to you to link together in your minds these two ideas. Number one, man is sovereign through his making. That's the technological side of the equation. Inseparably bound up to the view that the universe at large is unintelligible. And as Strauss puts it, there is no cosmic support for man's humanity. You see, our reliance on technology as a response to our apparent lack of cosmic support. An artificial island of technology making and sovereignty on one side, and an unintelligible, indifferent, godless, materialistic, cosmic whole on the other. Those two go together. It's doubtful, to say the least, whether technology making and sovereignty could coexist as they are now understood, with the view that the cosmic whole is intelligible, not indifferent, and divine. Therefore, we conclude as follows. A lot is at stake in the question of technology, nothing less than man, the world, and God. Well, I hope that you have found this to be an interesting, thought-provoking presentation. As I said, there are courses on these kinds of topics at millermanschool.com, including many free lectures that I recommend to you. Thanks for your time and attention. As always, see you in the next video.